0: This week, we also learned that in 2024, the SAT will be going digital. This is an effort to make the test easier to take, administer, and be more relevant. The test will go from three hours down to two, in part due to a process called adaptive testing that will tailor the difficulty of questions to what is appropriate for a student's performance level. For more on all the changes, we'll speak to Nick Anderson, higher education reporter at The Washington Post.
1: We can all think back to tests that we took uh, way back when, and we had the number two pencil in our hand. We had to make sure that the pencil was sharp and we filled in the bubbles, right? That is all now being phased out. Um, By spring of 2024, the college admission test, the SAT, will be given through computers, laptops. And it will get shorter. It will be, instead of three hours, which it now currently is, it will be two hours. The college board, which runs the test, says that you'll still have the same top score of 1,600 on the scale. The scale won't change, but the way the test is given will change, shorter and digital.
0: Now, one of the interesting things is that a lot of colleges, because of the pandemic, but also for other reasons, don't even factor in the SAT or the ACT testing scores anymore when they're going to college admissions. And uh, there's a a group called Fair Test. They're a nonprofit advocate for more limited uh, use of standardized tests. They say that 76% of all four-year colleges and universities won't even mandate them for this coming year. So as it is, you know, it seems like it's being phased out by colleges.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely in a changing environment right now. The word of the day is test optional used to be that most of the highly prestigious, highly selective colleges required the SAT or the ACT, that's the rival test, and you had to take it in order to apply to those colleges. Now, more and more, it's becoming the norm that the test is optional. You can take it and send a score if you want to or not, if you don't want to. Now optional is sort of in the eye of the beholder. So there may be some students who feel that it's not really optional and they might feel pressure to send it in, but ultimately the choice will be up to them. That doesn't mean the tests are going away, I've got to add. Right. You have a lot of schools that are test optional where 80, 70 percent of the students who apply send in their test scores.
0: Now the College Board has gone through a lot of changes with the SAT since it first launched a uh, In 2005, uh, there was a whole back and forth, it seemed like, with the added essay writing portion. They implemented it for a number of years, then they took it away. Then last week, I think they took it out uh, completely. I mean, even with the essay part of it, it's been going through changes.
1: That's right. Back when the essay was added, there were people who said, oh, well, the SAT needs to measure some more higher order thinking skills. And the only way to really get a good sense of whether a student is college ready is to look at a writing sample that we make them submit under pressure. And so that was the reason the essay was added way back when. Then it became optional. And then finally, it was discontinued. And so now that there is no more essay. Uh, that's been the case for about a year now. This goes to the heart of the debate about these tests. How important are they? How valid are they in predicting college success? I mean, the reason these tests are given is to give colleges a clue that student X is able to prosper in their first year of college. If the tests are doing their job, they're providing another piece of data in that search for whether a student is ready for college. But there's a lot of people who think, well, you know, grades and transcripts, they matter a lot more. So there's there's a heavy debate about that.
0: One of the interesting things in all of this, right? So the test is going to be going from three hours to two hours. And one of the things that they do with the help of, obviously, of Putting this digitally on a computer is that it will go through a process called adaptive testing so everybody's testing experience will be a little bit different and the test will still be divided into two sections the math and, and then reading and writing but it's going to ask you a set of like introductory questions to see you know what kind of student i guess what kind of test taker you are and then it's going to tailor the test to that even so that that's an interesting change too
1: Adaptive testing is part of the secret sauce, or maybe not so secret, but it's part of the way that the college board is shortening the test. And think about it this way. There are two modules of questions, two, two sets of questions, if you will. The first set of questions, which both count, but the first set of questions will sort of figure out your level and then the next set of questions will be tailored to your level. And the people who are expert at testing say that it's easier and quicker to get a read on how people measure When you do this kind of adaptive testing, you can drill faster to the precise point that a a person's skill set is at. Now, I'm not a psychometrician. I don't know. But that's the theory behind the adaptive testing is to really get fast at the level that somebody is testing at.
0: Well, it'll be be interesting to see how this gets implemented, right? It's not going to start until 2024 here in the States. They're going to allow students to use calculators in the math section, The reading passages are going to be shorter and you'll be able to use your own laptop or school provided ones throughout all of this, too. So we'll see how the changes uh, shape the test and and college admissions and how the colleges react too. Nick Anderson, higher education reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. (laughs) NFTs have taken over the art world and millions of dollars are being spent on these digital artworks. But how much are they really worth? Right now, the Institute for Contemporary Art Miami is going through the difficult process to determine the value of a CryptoPunks NFT named Priscilla in case it gets destroyed, but also for tax purposes for the donor. For more on all this, we'll speak to Kevin Dugan, reporter at New York Magazine.
2: Six months ago, ICA Miami, they had this piece of NFT art donated to them by one of their trustees. Uh, This is a, you know, uh, it's a pixelated cartoon of a woman with purple lipstick and um, it last traded for uh, over $120,000. This CryptoPunks are one of the more popular NFTs. Essentially what they are is their own form of cryptocurrency, and they come packaged with these JPEGs, these images uh, that make them distinguishable to one another and give the owners something basically to brag about. And so as a work of art, this is a really brand new area for galleries and for museums to consider. So when it was donated to ICA Miami, one of the problems in understanding what the deal was with it was how much is it worth? It's tied to a cryptocurrency uh, called Ethereum, which is the second most popular uh, crypto out there. And these NFTs, they typically trade on open markets, but often a lot of the trades that happen are fake. So nobody really knows what these are actually worth. So you're having insurance companies which have to replace these NFTs in case they get stolen or hacked. And tax authorities who have to figure out tax breaks for donors, they have to come to a conclusion about essentially what's the real value of all of this. And this is taking place as people are taking a look at these and saying, why would you pay millions of dollars in some cases for what amounts to a jpeg
0: you said it was six months ago that this happened so it's taken six months for them to go through this process they still don't have that final number for what it's worth and and you mentioned how much it sold for right it it went for a high price so you'd think that price is the price but as you mentioned it's tied to ethereum it's tied to these cryptocurrencies that are really volatile so the value of it is is really hard to pinpoint
2: Right, and this is one of the ironies of this, right? Because when you have these open, transparent markets, these open exchanges, you would think that the price is the price, but in fact, with the art market, where things have been done behind closed doors, where people can take a look at a broad swath of different types of art that's changed hands over decades, if not centuries, then you can start comparing these prices The problem is that this is just so new. And you've really never had art that is
0: essentially its own type of money before.
2: So this is a new way of thinking about valuing art.
0: How does the art world and art dealers feel about things like NFTs? I know on one hand, it gives them access to younger buyers, uh, people that are, you know, want to buy the NFTs, kind of want to start uh, making money that way, trading and selling them. So on, on one hand, you have that. But on the other side of it, you have the kind of traditional art world built on exclusivity and, and all this other stuff. And one of the guys that you spoke to that owns a gallery says, you know, they might have to invent new ways to create the aura of exclusivity or privilege when it comes to NFTs. So uh, even for them, their their whole kind of uh, model has been thrown upside down when it comes to NFTs.
2: The people who I've spoken with are very divided about whether NFTs really will be the future of art, whether it's a component of art, or whether it's just a passing fad. Nobody's saying they're not art, right? But I think that there is a lot of skepticism that you know what you're seeing will have real lasting value for that long. Certainly when you take a look at like CryptoPunks or Bored Apes or other early, very popular NFT art, works there is some real art historical value to it so uh, there may not be nfts that are as popular as these in the future but they've broken ground in a way so that makes them you know worthwhile for galleries and for museums to invest in them because people can look back and say okay well this is indicative of a moment in time Mm But yeah, I mean, you know, the art world is exclusive. It requires people to be vetted. It requires people to have been in the market for a while, especially when it comes to the upper levels of fine art. And so there's a culture clash between the kind of staid institutional art world and the upstart nature of cryptocurrencies that is seeking to disrupt just about everything.
0: Kevin Dugan, reporter at New York Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Finally, next week marks the beginning of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. And one thing to watch out for is how the weather behaves. China will be deploying weather modification technology at new levels of scale to make sure that the games go off without a hitch. Cloud seeding to produce rain and blue skying to make sure the skies are beautiful and wiped away of clouds and smog. For more on China's efforts to control the weather, we'll speak to Stephen Zajicik, Tech and Innovations Reporter at the Washington Post.
3: There are some very ambitious initiatives that are uh, that have been taking place for a while there, and they're kind of ramping up ahead of the games beginning uh, next week in Beijing and surrounding areas. And uh, you mentioned cloud Cloud seeding is a very old tech; it dates back all the way to the 1940s, in fact. And uh, we've used it here in the U.S. and droughts, and other countries around the world have as well. But no one's quite deployed it at the scale that China is doing. And uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, they basically said, we're going to make this a priority and, and essentially cover, uh, you know, uh, you know, millions of square miles uh, trying to cloud seed. and what cloud seeding essentially is, is it's firing little uh, uh, kind of iodide crystals into clouds to try to stimulate rain. And um, you know, there's a lot of scientific debate about whether this works or not, but that's not really stopping China from, from moving forward with this. And so again, they've been kind of, they've got all these projects going and have for the last, uh, year plus. Uh, and, you know, by by all accounts and, and from what sources are telling us, uh, they're really stepping it up in advance of the Olympics.
0: As I mentioned, they have active departments within their government. So one's called Beijing Weather Modification Office, China Meteorological yes. Association Weather Modification Center. So, I mean, that just kind of proves how how big they're really going for this.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it really is kind of remarkable when you think about, you know, sort of formalizing it at that level. I mean, we could think here in the States, we've got, you know, all sorts of government agencies Uh, you know, dedicated to everything from, you know, the education to to the environment to, to, you know, kind of down the line. But, uh, you know, and they've got a lot of those, too, of course. But the idea that they've got tens of thousands of people working at both, you know, the federal and the provincial level uh, to modify the weather. And that that, that includes a lot of other uh, techniques besides this one. But certainly cloud seeding is a big one. So, yeah, this is a huge priority uh, for the government there and has been for some time. And they're really leaning on it in advance of the games.
0: So the games are coming up, right? There's uh, whatever the uh, sport of the day that's happening. You just want a beautiful, picturesque day. You want blue skies out there. So there is this thing called blue skying. This is something they've already done before. I think they did it last summer, where they try to make it rain a little bit, clear out all of the fog, clear out all of the the bad stuff in the sky, make it nice and clear and blue. So this, I mean, tell me a little bit more about that because they've already done some of this. Yeah, no,
3: blue sky is a really interesting sort of approach. And and remember, they, they've got sort of different techniques they can use to clear out the clouds. But but often the goal is, and certainly the way we use it here, is to really uh, cause precipitation to fall so that there's no drought. Or in their case, they do it often to uh, to reduce the severity of hailstorms. But blue sky is a whole different uh, uh, kettle of fish where they're essentially uh, trying, as you say, to clear out the clouds in advance. So this past summer, uh, they had the uh, big... Um, centenary for the Communist Party and they wanted, you know, really blue skies over Tiananmen Square. So the night before they kind of fired all these rockets up to kind of empty the clouds as it were to have clear skies the next day. And again, there's a lot of debate about whether this actually works. So it did seem to it did it did in fact seem to work in this case. And so yeah, they did clear out the the clouds and the next day was perfectly blue skies. And and one can imagine if there's, you know, big events coming up, uh, if there's, you know, opening, closing ceremonies, uh, big, you know, events in, in uh, in the ski centers, uh, they want to make sure that they're happening under nice conditions. It plays well on TV. It plays well uh, for the dignitaries on the ground. And so, blue skying, which is essentially using—you know—we're talking about firing rockets and shells into the sky. This isn't just, you know, kind of a, a gentle sort of sweep. This is some heavy artillery, and they're trying—you know—would presumably try to do it. We don't know for sure, but presumably they're going to try to do it to get some really nice days for the Olympics.
0: One of the other things, and this is obviously done in a lot of different places, they are creating snow for a lot of the events there. But this is another kind of subset of that where, I mean, they're using 49 million gallons of water to be able to get this done. So this impacts their water supply. There's a lot of uh, far reaching effects that happen when you're doing a lot of this.
3: Yeah, there really are. And, you know, I think the thing with cloud seeding is we don't really know the effect. If, if you make it rain in one place, are you taking the water from somewhere else? Certainly some of the neighboring countries, India and others have kind of suggested that. Uh, but you're absolutely right in terms of the snow creation. And, you know, we should we should remind listeners that snow creation is not new all around the world. Obviously, a lot of resorts uh, here in, in North America do it. And even past the Olympics, both in Sochi and Pyeongchang, uh, that was something that was done at a, a fairly large scale. But but, you know, as you note, I mean, China really has in these mountains outside Beijing, they really have almost no snow uh, on a typical week. And so they've got 49 million gallons of water and a kind of whole energy apparatus to create the snow essentially from scratch. And what that means is, you know, Beijing, which already is under a pretty uh, significant uh, water duress, uh, could be facing an even greater one because a lot of this water is being used to make snow.
0: You mentioned it briefly. You touched on it. You know, some of the environmental concerns and risks, a lot of them are still unknown. And, you know, when you're doing a lot of the cloud seeding, let's say you do succeed in making it rain in one part, but there's only so much precipitation available, right? So there is concerns that you could be providing water in one place, taking it away from another place. And as you mentioned, some of the neighboring countries could even impact them. Uh, Tell me a little bit about these concerns.
3: Yeah, there are serious concerns. And I think, you know, I should caution it by saying that the research on this is still quite an open question, right? Like we don't know how much you're actually, you know, stimulating rain with this stuff. It's very hard to know that because uh, you don't know what it would have, what the rainfall uh, fall would have been otherwise, and uh, it's very hard to know if the rain would if it would have rained somewhere else or not. I think the thing that that concerns a lot of the um, experts that I talk to is it's one thing if you're doing it in a very sort of specific one-off kind of targeted way, again, which we've done in the West when there are droughts and we're just trying to kind of coax rain out of a few clouds. Uh, what China's uh, doing, uh, not just with the Olympics, but uh, you know well beyond the games, and they've been doing for a while, is really put, kind of putting this are deploying this at at a very very wide scale so they've got something over the tibetan plateau which is you know hundreds of thousands of square miles uh, much bigger than even you know california or some of the big states we have here and they're trying to kind of make it rain into the rivers to sort of try to get the rivers to flow a little bit more uh, strongly so we don't really know what doing it at that scale is going to incur and i think a lot of neighboring countries understandably are kind of saying well wait a second if you're just trying to kind of, you know, take all this rain and, and or take all these clouds and make it rain there, is that going to create drought uh, for us? Because the downstream effect, as it were, is could be a lot less rain for everybody else. So, again, we don't know yet because they've not, it's not really been deployed at this scale before, right. but certainly that's something a lot of experts are keeping an eye on.
0: Well, the Olympics are upon us very shortly. I'm going to be much more in tune to seeing what the weather looks like, what the conditions are, and kind of knowing, you know, what, what they're doing to prepare for it all. So it'll be something very cool to look out for. Steven Zaichik, tech and innovations writer at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
0: That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.